Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This week we have our new pastor, Heath Bauer, bringing the message on his candidate weekend. And he asked the question, what type of salt are you? Are you clean salt or are you dirty salt? Stick around to the end and find out how you can connect to Unity Baptist Church. Thank you for that uh, worship experience there and that the Lord laid on your heart for this morning. Well, quickly, I just want to say uh, nine months ago, we started this journey in search of a, a uh, senior pastor to, to lead our church. And we asked right up front for your prayers throughout the process. And I can say without a doubt that the entire committee felt those prayers throughout the whole nine months. And as a result, the Lord has uh, laid on our hearts and laid on Brother Heath Bauer's heart to be to, to have him come to this church and for him to come here. I hope you had a chance to, to meet Heath and Amber Bauer throughout this weekend. We had a lot of different sessions, a lot of meetings, a lot of discussion that went on, and I hope you just had the pleasure of meeting them. Um, I'm still waiting for everyone to kind of sit down, so I'll just keep going. Uh, but anyway, um, it's been a great weekend. We've been truly blessed. Uh, the Lord has blessed us as a committee, uh, and I believe as a church. Uh, and as I said, the Lord laid on uh, Heath Bauer's heart to, uh, to come to this church. He laid on our search committee's heart, and by unanimous selection, we have selected Heath Bauer to come uh, this weekend and this morning to bring the Lord's message that he's laid on his heart. So without further ado, I want to introduce to you Brother Heath Bauer. Good morning, church. It's been a it's been a real journey getting here, as uh, the search committee can attest. And I could tell you some stories about all that God has had to do to bring us together this morning. But I just want you to know it is good to be amongst God's people today, and just the love and the encouragement we've received. It's just a breath to my soul, and so I just want to thank you especially just helping us walk through some difficult times uh, as of recently as well. So, well, as we get started, I just want to share something with you I didn't share with the search committee yet. And it's, uh, my family likes watching animal documentaries. And if you're into, I don't know if that makes me a nerd or not, but something we enjoy is, uh, we don't watch a lot of TV, but when we do, we enjoy watching the animals, uh, God's creation as they interact. And I personally like watching the weird stuff. My father was always into scuba diving and that kind of thing, and he loved the, uh, the deep sea things. And so I like watching uh, God's critters from underneath uh, the waves, especially the weird ones, you know, the ones with the giant eyes and the big teeth, you know, the ones look like seventh grade science teachers and things, and don't email me. But, you know, these really odd looking ones from the bottom of the ocean. And what I've noticed is a lot of these guys, they have these defense mechanisms, you know, and they're, they're really fun and interesting to watch. And so you'll see the cuttlefish, you know, not C-U-D-D, they don't like to cuddle, but like they, you know, they look like little squids and they, they change color. And they kind of adapt to their environment to avoid predators and things like that or possibly to scare others off. You keep watching some of these documentaries, you might see a squid and he'll disappear in a cloud of ink. But you know, the funniest one that I saw recently was something called the boxer crab. You ever seen a boxer crab? Well, you can kind of figure what his defense mechanism is. It's really funny, actually. Uh, you get this crab at the bottom of the ocean and he looks around for something to defend himself because he's a little guy. And so what he'll do is he'll pick up something called a sea anemone. You guys know what that is, right? 
You kids watch Finding Nemo. You know what an anemone is. A little clownfish swims in at them. They are stinging tentacles. And so most fish will back away from that. Well, a boxer crab will go right up and pick up these little bad boys like boxing gloves. And it's the funniest thing you've ever seen. So he picks up these little anemones, one in each hand, and fish come by, and he takes a swipe at them. It's just a hilarious thing. And what's funny to me is I, I've often re, uh, leaned over to my wife and I'll say, you know what's funny to me is not that this animal does it, is that we have a sovereign creator God who in the infinity of his wisdom said, this is going to be great. And he created him that way. He made him to do that. And it just amazes me uh, to, to see that, that he has instilled both the desire to survive and the ability to survive by giving him these defense mechanisms. Well, there's defense mechanisms within us too, aren't there? You know, where we want to, our natural instinct is when we sense that there is danger around, when there is persecution looming on the horizon, we have certain things that we do to defend and protect ourselves. And it's to that that we are speaking this morning in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you'd like to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be talking about salt and light this morning. But before we do that, I want you to understand the context in which we find these illustrations of salt and light. And that's what it is, by the way. Salt and light are Jesus' sermon illustrations for the Beatitudes. Now, we talk about Beatitudes. It just comes from the Latin beatus, which means... uh, you know, happy, but literally happy because you're living under the blessing of God. And so when he says happy is the man, he's actually saying this man is happy or blessed because he's under the blessing of God. In other words, he's a believer. And then in the Beatitudes, we see what a believer looks like because during this time, Jesus, when he preached this sermon, he was uh, being followed by uh, large crowds of people. He's already called his disciples to follow him. He's been doing a number of miracles, and he's got a lot of people following him with varying degrees and ideas of what does it mean to be a true believer. You had Pharisees who thought to be a true believer means that we follow all kinds of strict codes and laws, and I'm going to make sure you follow it too, and I'm going to add some laws and make sure you do it right so you can't accidentally disobey those laws, okay? That was the Pharisees. You have others who thought that to be a believer, it just meant to kind of blend in with things. Uh, you have your Sadducees and others who cooperated with the Roman government, and they thought to be a believer just meant to, to go along with the world system and, you know, do what you can. You had other people who thought that, uh, that, the, that God should be here to help us with our social and political reform, your, your Herodians, your zealots and things. And so a lot of people follow Jesus for wrong reasons. And then you just have your crowds, people who are there just to go, hey, what's going on? You know, what's happening here? What are you doing? I see, I've heard there's some miracles. I heard Jesus is giving out food. And so they'll follow him for different reasons. So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount wants to keep it clear to us, what is a true believer? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be a a, a true follower and believer in in God? And so he's going to uh, preach on that with the Beatitudes. He says things like uh, they're poor in spirit, they're meek, they hunger and thirst for a righteousness that's not their own. In other words, they're, they're genuinely saved. They're born again. They're converted. But then he says that they are merciful. God's true believers are also pure in heart. He's so he's saying we're not simply forgiven. We're transformed so that we become more and more like our Father who's in heaven. So we are sanctified. Then in the Beatitudes, he continues on. He says that we have a job to do. We're not just saved so that we can live our life and go, at least I'm not going to hell, you know, but I'm just going to live my life. He says they have a job, that they are peacemakers. And it doesn't mean simply that they help solve arguments within the church, but they see themselves as having a divine preoccupation with helping others make peace with God. Romans 5 says, therefore having 
justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. And we want to take that peace that God has brought into our hearts, we want to take that out to a lost world. We have a job. And so God's people are serving. And then finally, the last point that Jesus is going to make in the Beatitudes is what? Well, if you look with me briefly, again, this is all just context. In verses 11 through 12, Jesus is going to say that true believers are willing to suffer. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Don't be persecuted for doing something genuinely wrong. He says, rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, with all these crowds of people following Jesus for the wrong reasons, how do you suppose they responded to that? Oh, by the way, true believers, they're going to suffer. You, if you're a true believer, a follower of God, at some point in time in your life, you're going to suffer for your faith. I don't think that's going to set very well. And it doesn't with those who are simply religious, those who are simply churched, but not truly converted. Those who are truly converted, we're okay with that because we know that Christ is of surpassing value than anything we have here on earth. But this isn't the only place that it says that. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Not some, not just the church leaders, every person who is living a godly life in Christ Jesus, and you're living out loud, as the, as the sermon title says, we're living outside the bushel, you're going to suffer persecution. It's something we should expect. Jesus himself in John 15, 20 says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you too. And so it's something that a Christian should uh, expect. It's not something that we look forward to. It's not something that we, we relish. We don't look for it. But it will come to us if you're living out loud. You're living outside the bushel. You're not hiding your light. And so in that context, we, need to, we have to tie these illustrations of salt and light to the previous verses. He just got done saying, blessed are those who suffer and are persecuted for my sake. And then he says, now let me give you an illustration. You are the salt of the world. You are the light of the world. So Jesus says, you're salt. Uh, in verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall the saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And so the first thing I want you to see is that we are salt by nature. God's people don't try to be salt. He says, you are salt. He wants us to understand what our true identity in Christ is. It's not something that we aspire to be. He says, you already are salt. You're a certain type of salt. You're either pure salt or you're dirty salt. Now, when we talk about salt, we're talking about uh, something that's extremely valuable in that culture, okay? Again, when we read the Bible to interpret it properly, we have to first understand what did this verse mean to the people who originally heard it? We hear salt, and we're just thinking, ah, it's like that little blue box of Morton salt, you know, little girl in a, you know, galoshes and a rain jacket. And, and, but when they thought of salt, it was something entirely different. It was something extremely valuable to them. The Greeks called salt theon. You know, we get the word theos, theology of God. They, they actually saw salt as being divine. Now, that's a pretty high view of salt to me. But the Romans actually believed that salt was the most valuable commodity in the universe outside of the sun itself. So valuable was salt to the Romans, they would actually pay their soldiers in salt, which is where we get the term salary. You ever heard the term, that man's not worth his salt? 
comes from that. The fact that the Romans would even pay their, their people in salt. And so salt is a very valuable commodity, friends. And, and you're a valuable commodity to God. You're important to him. I think we need to hear that too because sometimes people get, a, Christians even, can get a very low view of themselves because you go out there and you take the gospel and you take the light out into the world and the world doesn't think very highly of your Jesus. And quite often they don't think very highly of you or of me. You need to understand, you know, in the very precious verse to me this weekend, precious to God is the death of his saints. Each and every individual believer is precious to God. And so we are salt by nature. It's who we are. But we also know that salt is useful. Jesus himself said salt is for taste. Okay, we add it to food. Uh, it can also be used for the path, you know, to keep dandelions from growing up between the sidewalk cracks. Uh, so salt is a useful commodity. Salt has a great number of uses. We know that salt is obviously good for food. Uh, you can preserve, make some beef jerky with it. You can preserve fish with it, if you do that kind of thing. Um, you can, uh, we throw it on our sidewalks. We can use it for these things. And uh, talking to Randy the other day, you can even use it to put out fires. <laughs> I'm not going to go down that road too far, brother. My father even once told me when I was a kid, I had a canker sore, and my dad says, you know what? You put salt on that thing. It'll dry it right up. You ever put salt in a canker sore before? You try that and report back. You will cry out for the rapture. <laughs> Didn't work, by the way. It just hurt. I think he was mad at me. But salt by its nature is a useful substance, and he's saying that you are the salt of the earth, that we have a divine function to accomplish on earth. That we're not just saved so that we can go to heaven someday. We're saved for a divine purpose. Salt is of no use when it's left in the cupboard. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each one of us has received a gift. Okay, we're talking about spiritual gifts, a divine enablement that God gave every believer at salvation to be used to serve the body and to reach the world. As each one of you, and by the way, that's everyone here who is a born-again child of God. Whether you know it or not, you have a spiritual gift, something that God has given you to use, and you're either using it for his service or you're not. He says, but after you have received it, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. He says varied grace because we don't all serve in the same way. We don't all have the same spiritual gifting, but we all have an important divine function to perform. And let me just pause here for a second. Uh, whenever it's a candidate Sunday, a lot of times churches have high hopes for the new pastor coming in. Let me, just, let me just set your mind at ease. Guys, there is no pastor on earth that's good enough to just single-handedly clutch a church and grow it to this mighty, uh, God-glorifying institution. A pastor is just a grain of salt. He's one grain. What can you do with one grain of salt? If you put one grain of salt in the soup, you're really going to taste that? You're going to try to de-ice your driveway with one grain of salt? But friends, when, a, when you come together as a church body and each one of us functions as salt and we take that seriously, now God can do a whole lot with that. And so our hopes and dreams on, the, on, on Unity Baptist Church, on becoming a, a great beacon of light in this community, it helps to have a good pastor. I mean, if he's no good, it's really hard to invite folks to church. 
But it helps a lot more when every individual believer sees themselves as valuable to God, valuable to this church, and understands that you have a spiritual gift that God desires for you to use. And when we come together as this giant pile of salt, now you can do a lot with that. And God can do mighty things. But it's when each and every one of us takes their role seriously to be a salty Christian. I want you to see too that salt cannot be changed only contaminated. Look in verse 13. Jesus says something kind of strange. <clears throat> Excuse me. He says, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Now, can salt lose its saltiness? Technically speaking, no. Sodium chloride is an extremely stable compound. You don't really alter it as much as it is just polluted. And here's, here's where understanding the context, once again, makes the verse make a lot more sense. Again, when we think of salt, we think of salt shakers. We think of what we have in the cupboards. We think of what we cook with. Uh, maybe you think of rock salt when you're making homemade ice cream. I don't know. But when Jews heard the word salt, they pictured up something very different in their minds. Salt to them was something that they gathered outside uh, from the salt deposits that surrounded the Dead Sea, which is... Full of, uh, very full of salt, which I am told that if you go out there and, and rest in the Dead Sea, you can sit there and read a newspaper. That's how much salt is in the Dead Sea. And so what would happen is it would either happen by accident or they would farm it. They would have these little rocky crags in these areas where the water would collect and the, uh, the water would, would drain off or the, the sun would bake it and evaporate the water. And what would be left is this salt deposit. Now, this salt deposit wasn't pure, pure salt, but it was mostly salt. So we just called it salt. But there would be various other uh, surrounding elements mixed into it, sulfur, magnesium, uh, calcium, and things like that. But it was mostly salt, and so the Jews just called it salt. And if you got to that deposit early enough, it was, it was very tasty. It was very, 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 very salty. So you could pack fish with it, and they'd last forever. Uh, you could cook with it, and it tasted great. But if you had a salt deposit that had been there too long and the rains had continued to hit it and leach all, most of the salt out of it, you'd have trace amounts of salt there, but it would, still, it would have so much of the surrounding and elements within it that it wasn't good for eating. It didn't have a good taste to it. So you wouldn't use it for eating. And that salt, uh, when, it, when most of that salt was leached out and it was filled with too much of the surrounding elements, it could only be used for menial purposes. And like Jesus said, throwing it out on the path so that people could walk on it, keep plants and stuff from growing. It still had a purpose, but it served a much more diminished purpose. Why did it serve a diminished purpose? Because there wasn't enough salt. There was too much of the surrounding elements in it. Are you seeing where I'm going with this? I hope you're already drawing your own conclusions here. Salt that is too contaminated with the surrounding elements is only useful for the path. And we need to say this here. We're not talking about salt being here that's for the path being unbelievers, whereas salt that's good for tasting is, is real believers. All salt in this context are believers. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is telling us what a true believer is like and what the kingdom of God is like. And so when he says that we have lost our saltiness, it's not that we're no longer believers, we, that we have somehow lost our salvation and God's going to trample us down. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying here, it, because by the way, you can't lose that, all right? God doesn't make us born again and, and, you know, cut us off from the family. You're either born again truly and you have works that accompany that, or you were never a believer at all. And so, here he's saying, when he's saying that you're only good for the path, what he is saying is that if your life is so filled with the surrounding elements of the world, 
that we are living too worldly a life, that we have too much of the world within us, too much of the world's speech, too much of the world's thinking, too much of the world's behavior. God can't put us in a pot roast. We're not good for the taste. At that point, we're only good for the path. Not that we lost our salvation, but that we serve a much more diminished purpose. What we're saying is that a, to be useful to God, we need to maintain our basic nature and character, that of being salty, that of being like Christ. And so a Christian's usefulness to God is in direct proportion to the purity of their life. If there's one thing I've seen in, what is that, 25 years of ministry or so, that we've seen is that the people that God uses greatly aren't always the pretty ones. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, they're not always the, the highly intelligent ones. They're not always the ones that come with some great pedigree and they dry, dress really nicely. The ones that God uses greatest for his kingdom often are the ones who are simply pure in heart. They're like Christ. You see, God likes to fill clean vessels. What did he say to the Pharisees, though? You guys, you wash the outside of the cup because you only care what you look like to other people, but you leave the inside of the cup dirty. God wants those who are far more concerned about the cleanliness of the inside of their cup, that they are pure in their saltiness, that they're not filled with the surrounding elements of this earth because if you become that way, I can't use you for great things. You can still serve a purpose, but it'll be much more diminished in its purpose. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous preacher at Westminster Chapel in London, said, the influence of a Christian in and on society depends on their being distinct and not identical with the world. God wants us. There's, a, there's an idea out there that if we want to reach the world, we have to become exactly like them. I would argue that Jesus is telling us the opposite. That if we want to reach the world, we have to show them not just that we're different, not that we're strange or better than them, but that we're living an excellent life. And they'll see the excellency of that life. And they'll ask us about the, Jesus, the, the hope that's in you. They'll be like, why do you live this way? You seem really happy with your marriage. I'm not. What's, what's the difference? Why, do your, why are your children on any given day obedient, honoring, respectful to you? And it's at that point we have a chance to point them to Jesus. Friends, it's not me. There's nothing great about me, but there's something great about my Savior. And he can bring this change into your life too. Seven different times in Scripture, God commands his people to be holy as God is holy. And what that means is that our standard of holiness isn't just looking at the world and trying to be a little bit better than what we see out surrounding us. Purity in God's eyes is that we're not looking at the world at all to define our ethics. That we're looking to the Word of God and we're looking to Christ as our example and we follow him. That's what it means to be holy as I am holy. Obviously, we can't be as holy as God Unless you're divine, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're resurrected Savior. And if you are, we'll tithe to you. Let us know who you are. But what he is saying that when he says, be holy as I am holy, it means that we seek to be holy and that our standard for holiness is God, not the world. And so we don't just try to be a little bit better than the worst there is. Because as the world slides into the abyss, the church follows. And so our standard of holiness is, I want to be like God, not to be better than people, but simply because my desire is to be like the one who is my true heavenly father. That I'm not just given, I've been transformed, I've been changed, I've been born again. I used to be of my father, the devil, Jesus said, but now we become sons and daughters of the most high. That's why God uses terms like born again, transformed. 
terms like regeneration, regene, that the very DNA of God has been placed within us when we're born again. So it's not that I try real hard to be a good person. I desire to be a good person. Why? Because God converted my insides. Now, it takes a while for my outside to catch up. But I desire that goodness. And friends, if we don't desire that goodness internally, and if we're not grieved when we sin, we have every reason in the world to wonder whether or not the inside's been transformed yet. He doesn't change you, he doesn't change everything about us immediately, but the one thing that does change is our attitude towards sin is, I hate it, and I want to be like him. And I want to be as like him according to his standard, not the world. So uh, the next illustration Jesus is going to give us here is light. In verses 14 through 16, <clears throat> Jesus is going to say this. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Just as we heard in this lovely song just a moment ago. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand that it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Once again, when Jesus uses the illustration of light, he's talking about the essential nature of who a believer is. Light is not something we try to become. Light is who we already are in Christ. And that needs to be said because you're thinking, you're looking at your life going, well, you know, you don't understand. I'm still sinning even as a believer and I hate it. It drives me crazy. There's no way that I'm light. God says you are. And what you believe to be true about yourself in Christ will affect how you live. If you don't believe that you have any hope of being like Christ, you're never going to try. You're going to give up before it even starts. But Jesus is saying that our essential nature is that God is the great light. We are the lesser light. But nonetheless, we are light. Because the God of the universe himself indwells our life through his Holy Spirit. And he puts us out as lesser lights all throughout the world. But that is our essential nature and character as he has made us children of the light. And he sends us out into the world. Jesus said also in Luke 8, 16, a similar message. No one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar, nor do they put it under a bed. He says, but I want you to hear this, so that... When Jesus says, so that, he's letting you know what the purpose of light is. No one puts it under the bed, so that those who enter may see the light. Now, we turn on lights. This is really smart here. We turn on lights because it's dark, okay? We don't want to stub our toe. We don't want to step on a Lego. Ever done that? Uh, we turn on the lights because we need to see where we're going so we don't get hurt, so we don't destroy ourselves, so that we can find the right way to go, find the path to wherever it is we're headed. Jesus says that is our purpose as light, that we serve a divine purpose. He's speaking to our, our usefulness as lights. We are shining so that others can find their way where? To Christ. We show them the path by our words, by our speech, and once again, to be good lights, we have to be bright lights. We can't let that light be dimmed by worldliness, even within our own hearts and lives. Ephesians 5, 8 says, For at once you were in darkness, but now, now that you're born again, you are light of the world. Therefore, walk as children of light. He's just saying, be, let your outside behavior and your speech be consistent with what is already true in your heart and life. It's another way of talking about uh, Galatians 5. It uh, talks about the fruit of the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit. It talks about uh, uh, walking in the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. That's all that means. That God has placed His Holy Spirit within us, and He's beating a certain drum at a certain cadence. And sometimes, 
our, out, our exterior, our flesh, and our actions, our walk, match that inter internal cadence. He's, he's asking us to keep in step with the Spirit. God has placed a certain cadence in our heart, and he wants us to walk according to that, to make our outside match what's already true of our inside. And so, as believers, we are light. But then, once again, he talks about the, the, the job and the role of light. He says, lights must stand out to be useful. He says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. If you've ever been in an airplane, you forgot to charge your phone, you have nothing to do, and you're completely bored, you've already read through the cue cards, and you've, you've, you've done uh, origami animals with the, uh, you know, vomit bag, and you're looking out the window, and it's dark, and you're bored, and you see nothing outside the window, you're losing hope, will we ever get there? And then, eventually, you see this little spider web of light. And you start to have hope. And it just, it stands out just as a beacon in the darkness. It just, there's no way of hiding that. Your eyes are immediately drawn from what is dark to what is light. He says, that's how much a Christian who is light should stand out in a darkened world. We should look like Cincinnati from an airplane. It should just be this bright, bold thing that eyes are naturally drawn toward out of curiosity. What is that? We are light in the world, and we have to stand out to be useful. We have to be obvious. We have to be clear. We're not under a bushel. We're living life outside the bushel. In the bushel, we all come together. We all come to church. We shut the doors. We pull the shades down, and we just enjoy all the light here. And friends, I've been enjoying this light this morning. I've been enjoying the worship, enjoying the fellowship, enjoying the hugs, enjoying the shaking of hands. The light is fun to be around. But Jesus says for a light to truly be useful in the world, we've got to open the doors and we have to take the light out of this building. And we have to take it into our neighborhoods and we have to take it with us on our job. We have to take it to our extended family, even the ones who don't believe in Jesus, for a light to be useful. You don't put them under a jar. You don't put them under a bed. We've got to stand out to be useful. We've got to be willing to let God put our life on display. That doesn't mean you're perfect. It just simply means that you're willing to open your mouth and to share who Christ is. It means you're willing to admit when you're wrong. It means that you're, as best you understand and as best you know how, you're trying to make your outside reality match your inside reality. That we are walking in the Spirit, keeping step with the Spirit. Jesus logically points out, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. King James calls it a bushel, therefore life outside the bushel. Uh, but rather we put a light on a stand that it gives light to everyone in the house. Now, we understand the obvious necessity of putting lights on a stand. The lights in this room are where? They're obvious. They're out in the open. Oh, I mean, they're right here. They're, it, the lights are one, always one of the most obvious things in a room. Because to be useful, it has to be central. It has to stand out so that it can give light to everything and everyone that's around them. And by the way, when we give light, we don't pick and choose who we're light in front of. We don't just be light in the youth group. We, we be light in the high school. We're not just light in the church. We're lights in our neighborhood. A light doesn't turn off its light. It doesn't cover its light. Just because there's a potential of persecution or maybe somebody giving you a weird look, a light is a light by nature. Why wouldn't we cover our, why would we cover our light? Logically, nobody would. But when he's talking about here, he's talking about another Christian defense mechanism. The temptation with salt was to become like the world so that we blend in. The temptation with light is not that we become like the world, it's that we just won't let the world see who we are because we're scared that somebody might not like us. Same reason Spider-Man won't let anybody know that he's Peter Parker, Right? 
Why does Peter Parker have a costume? Why doesn't he just go out there as little Pete, you know, with a t-shirt and jeans and run around slinging webs and all that kind of stuff? Because he's worried that somebody later is going to bust in during a math test and, and whop him over the head. Or they're going to grab Aunt B. Uh, well, that changes the Mayberry story, doesn't it? They're going to grab it. What's her name? Aunt, Aunt May. I wouldn't mind seeing that as a movie, though. <laughs> we cover our identity because we're scared of reprisal. But Jesus says we can't be like Spider-Man. We have to be willing to absorb that reprisal just as Jesus did. And only in so doing, as we're allowing our light to shine and we put it on a stand, are we genuinely useful to God. And so let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt tempted to hide your light? I have. One of my first real jobs at age 16 worked at Burger King. I come from illustrious backgrounds, friend. Uh, I worked at Burger King. I slung burgers like, like many of you did to earn your first car. And what I found was is they don't talk like the youth group at Burger King. I learned a lot of words that would make my mom very disappointed. I didn't use them, but I knew what it was. And, and so I'll tell you what I did at 16. My initial, my first reaction was, my first probably month or so on the job, is I just kept my mouth shut. I, didn't, I wasn't salt. I didn't start using those words myself. Okay, I wasn't dirty salt, but I was a covered light. I just simply didn't let anybody know who I was because I was a little bit scared at that time that these older, you know, worldly people, they were going to come down on me for it. And I didn't want to be disliked. And I just remember the pain and the humiliation of, why am I hiding who I am? There's always a temptation to refuse to be identified with Christ, but Philippians 2.15 says, be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights to the world. What I like about Philippians 2.15 here is it acknowledges that when we shine our lights, it's not because it's easy to shine our lights in the world. He says we live in what kind of generation? Crooked. Twisted. Now that word crooked there is the Greek word scolios. And the only reason I share the Greek word with you is because it sounds like something. Okay? Scolios. It just sounds like a nasty word. What does it sound like to you? Scoliosis, right? You know, the curvature of the spine. That's not a healthy thing. Nobody, nobody prays for that. But he says the people that we live around all have curvature of the spine, morally speaking. Everybody. And when everybody looks like this, and you Christian come in with a straight, healthy spine, and you notice nobody else looks like you, you begin to wonder if you're really the weird one. We live in a, a crooked and twisted generation. He says, you're going to stand out. You're going to be weird. Everybody else is hunched over in sin, and you're standing up straight in Christ going, hey, everybody, and then you start to feel weird. And the temptation is, well, maybe I should, you know, kind of hunch over too and kind of become like them. We live in a crooked, crooked and twisted generation, friends. And, and by the way, because we live in a crooked and twisted generation, that's why being here in God's house with God's people is so important. We go out there and shine our lights, and it's hard. Everybody else is crooked, and we're trying to stand up straight in Christ, and we feel weird, like, oh, you think you're better than me? And then we, 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 we want to bend over with the rest of the world. We don't want to shine our lights. We want to cover our lights. We want to become salt to act like the world so that we fit in with the world. We need a place where we feel like we belong, and so we come back into God's house where everybody else is standing up straight in Christ, and it feels good to be amongst family. People who believe in Jesus like you, who love what you love, who have an eternal mindset, who, who believe in the things you believe in, who desire the things that you desire because nobody else out there in the world does. Friends, you're not going to get that, by the way, on a podcast. 
question was asked the other day. What do we tell people who say, well, you know what? I get everything I need at home. I get a podcast. I can give online. I can sing online. I don't need church. Friends, not coming to church because you can see these things online is like going to a virtual birthday party. Everybody else is out in the room going, oh, happy birthday, you know, and they're bringing out the cake, and they got the gifts, and they're hugging, and, and you're content to sit as a computer screen in the corner. Is that any fun? You getting anything out of that? Friends, it's better to be in the party. And so, friends, I just encourage you, uh, if it's safe and healthy for you to be so, come back to be with God's people because we need one another and not just digitally. It's hard. I get that. We're going through a tough COVID time. But it's during these times of sorrow and heartache and difficulty that we need each other all that much more. And we need love with skin on it. All throughout the New Testament, the Bible gives us all these one another's. Do this for one another. Love one another. Forbear one another. You can't one another at home. You got to have one another to do that. So that's another sermon. Didn't need to be preached right now, but you got it anyway. It was free of charge. Lights have to stand out to be useful. Even though everything around you is crooked. And you shine as a bright light as in a dark, dark place. I want you to see also here that being a light, it glorifies God. In verse 16, Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and do what? Does your Bible say? Glorify or give glory, whatever translation you're using. It's about giving glory to our Father who is in heaven. Just as you can't hide a city on a, on a hill, just as you wouldn't hide a lamp under a bushel, you live life outside the bushel. You're not just enjoying the light for yourself. You're letting it shine for all to see so that others can come be attracted to that light and to the Jesus that created that light. By the way, that's all evangelism is. Madeline and I were talking about this just yesterday. Evangelists can be scary to a lot of people. We think I have to know all the answers. I have to have every, I have to have every possible answer that they might have. Uh, all you have to do is share what you know. Nobody expects you to know everything. Evangelism is just flicking on the lights. You don't have to convince them to come in. You don't have to, uh, you don't have, to have just the right method so that you can coerce them into praying a sinner's prayer, friends. That's, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not a program. It's not a sales pitch. Evangelism is just telling people what you know to be true about Christ, sharing the word of God with people. You're just flicking on the lights. You don't have to make them believe. In fact, you can't make them believe. You flick on the lights, and yeah, cockroaches will scatter, but if you leave that light on long enough, what will be drawn to it? The moths, okay? So we're just, evangelism is just flicking on the light and seeing, seeing who scatters and seeing who comes. There will be some who come. And so we're the light of the world showing people how to get back to God. We allow God to make our internal faith not private, but public. And by the way, God has always demanded that people's faith be public. Back in Egypt, back when God wasn't too popular in that culture, you know, you got plagues and toads and, you know, fleas and darkness and blood rivers and things like that. So during that time when God isn't real popular with the Egyptians, at that first Passover, where did God make people put the blood of the lamb? On the outside. You hear people say, talk about faith, say, well, that's a private thing. Well, it's, not a, it's not a private thing. Maybe, maybe personal, personal to you, but it's not private. God's faith that he, that he has us express in Jesus Christ is always a public thing. 
It's not something we hide. It's not something Jesus says you can hide. You can't hide a city on a hill. Nor can you hide the true light that is within the heart and life of a believer. And by the way, when we shine that light, Jesus says, this causes, he says, lost people will, you'll shine your light before others so that they see your good works and they give glory to your Father in heaven. How is that? Because they see the excellency of your life. They see that somehow, after 20-some years of marriage, you and your wife still love each other and go out on dates. How can that be? I'm going out and playing softball just so I don't have to go to be with her. You know? They see that your kids are decent most of the time. And they see that, uh, that, the, that you're not, your life isn't just destroyed by sin. And they may, they may mock it at first, but deep inside, they long to have that kind of peace and joy that you seem to bring to work every Monday somehow. And when we live this kind of excellent life before others, this godly life, this Christ-centered life, this biblical life, it says they will see your good works. They'll see that you're not just preaching a message, you're living it, and that will cause them to glorify God. Now, we talk about glorifying God. You talk to any believers, what's the purpose of your life? Well, of course, it's to glorify God. Just give glory to God, glory to God. What does that look like? What does it mean to glorify God? Just briefly, this word here, glorify, is the word doxazo. Again, the only reason I share that is because the root of that word is doxa, which means an opinion. I want you to understand what it means to glorify God. To doxazo to God, to give glory to him, means it's, it's an opinion. And so lost people, they see your excellent life, and it shapes and changes their opinion of who God was. They used to think God was a drag. They used to think God is awful. They used to think God's the worst thing that could ever happen to a person. But then they saw your life. And it radically alters their opinion of God. It opinionates them in a favorable way toward God because of how we live, because we're willing to let that light shine. And they see the excellency of our Savior through our life. 1 Peter 2.12 reminds us of this very thing. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable, so that when, not if, but when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify, same Greek word, glorify God on the day of visitation. What's the day of visitation? When somebody comes and knocks on my door? No, but it's when God comes and knocks on your door. It's a, it's a term used often in the Old Testament to describe when God comes to a people, either in judgment or in blessing. And so what he's saying is that when lost people see our good deeds, they will glorify God on the day of visitation. It means that when God comes to their heart and they come to awareness of who God is and the grace of God comes down to that person and they have an opportunity to place their faith in Jesus, they're going to recall the lives of other believers that they know and your life will either glorify or blaspheme God. It will either opinionate them favorably toward God or they will think more negatively of our God based upon the lives that they have observed in other believers. So that's why it's so important that we live a light. We put our light on a stand that all may see it. That doesn't happen when we try to use our Christian defense mechanisms, when we try to blend in and become like the world. We talk like they talk, we love what they love, we do what they do so that we blend in. It doesn't happen when we have a bright light of Jesus shining in our hearts, but then we hide it under a bushel. We just enjoy it for ourselves, but we won't let anyone else see. God is not glorified in that kind of a believer. He can't be because nobody knows who you are. God is glorified when we live pure like Christ. He's glorified when we allow that light to be out on a stand for others to see, no matter what their response might be. We don't use defense mechanisms as a Christian because the truth is, God doesn't call Christians chameleons, does he? 
He doesn't call us box of crabs. He doesn't call us, you know, you know, you are the rhinoceros of, of Jesus' fold. That would change things around here, wouldn't it? Um, what kind of animal are we called? Anybody? Help me out. Let me know you're still awake here. We put anybody to sleep? We're sheep. What's a sheep's defense mechanism? It's to die. <laughs> sheep aren't real strong. I'd be really disappointed if I came here and found out that we'd come up there on a, on a Friday or like Saturday night, like last night, go out and see an Ashland football game, and it's the Ashland sheep. Nobody's scared to beat up a sheep. Sheep don't have defense mechanisms. The only protection that a sheep has is to be close to its shepherd. That's why James says, you know, uh, it doesn't just say resist the devil, he'll flee from you. It says, therefore, submit yourselves unto God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The shepherd is our protection. But moreover, we need to remember that sometimes the shepherd chooses to sacrifice the sheep. Romans 12.1, what does that say? It talks about beloved brothers, we are to give our lives as a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable and acceptable act of service. Jesus himself said, take up your cross daily. And so as Christians, we can't have defense mechanisms. We simply can be pure salt. We can be pure light, set out, and we entrust ourselves to God. And friends, that is my prayer for us this morning, that we will be just that. There may be some of us today who are listening to this message, and you're talking about salt and light. We're talking about what it means to be a genuine believer, and you're not sure that you truly are. Friends, we would encourage you to understand that while you may be a sinner, Christ has died on the cross for your sins. You may have come to church all your life. Doesn't mean you're a believer. You prayed a sinner's prayer. Doesn't mean you're a believer. Have you repented of those sins? Your mind has been changed about who God is. And he is working out his transformation in your life. Friends, that's the greatest confirmation that you're a Christian is you see God continually changing you. If that's not you, friends, we encourage you this morning uh, to come forward. To, uh, we'll help you understand how you can come to know Jesus Christ himself and his death on the cross in your place, taking the punishment you deserve that you might have life, and that you might become salt and light with the rest of us. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we're grateful today that we have an opportunity just to share your word, to be able to share this with one another. God, that we ourselves equally might just partake of your word and allow it to just fill us, to feed us this morning, to change our lives, that we might not become like the world, that we might not be dirty salt, that we might be used greatly of you for your purposes. And so we humbly submit ourselves to you for this purpose today and ask that you transform us uh, now and in the coming days when it gets difficult. We just recognize the darker the world is, the brighter that light shines. God, help us to be a light to this world. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. It is our prayer that this has been an encouragement to you. If you're interested in our gathering times or just want more information about unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland. Join us next week as we open God's Word together.